Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this podcast, I read through American Writers about 100 pages at a time, providing my comments, ideas, and thoughts. In this episode, we'll be finishing up our study of Frank Norris. Uh, we've already looked at three of his works, Vandover and the Brute, McTeague, and The Octopus. Uh, that's obviously not the only things he wrote. Um, he wrote short stories. He wrote other novels. Um, now, I always use the Library of America versions of these writers. And in, you know, this volume conveniently includes about 100 pages of Frank Norris's nonfiction writing. We don't have any of his stories and we don't have his other major novel that's not included, The Pit. Now, maybe a second volume of his works will come out. There's certainly enough there for a second volume of Frank Norris's writing, but uh, I don't know if we're going to get it. For now, this is what we got. Um, so we got 100 pages of nonfiction writing that I'm going to deal with. This is going to be my first chance to review some nonfiction writing. Uh, much more will come in the future. A, a huge part of the Library of America is, is of course, literature and, and, and writers and poets. Um, but, uh, you know, many of the works collected in there are essentially nonfiction. We have journalism, we have historical writing, speeches, sermons. Uh, there's, there's a lot of uh, different writing that would fit broadly under nonfiction. Now, normally I choose opening music that connects thematically with the works I'm looking at. I, I sometimes try to be a little humorous about it, but, you know, I, I search around for music, search around my memory, and try to fix something that, that might fit with, a, with an important theme or, you know, an idea. Um, in this case, I chose to use one of the top hits of 1903, the year Frank Norris died. It's The Palm Leaf Rag by Scott Joplin. This is also going to serve as a bridge to my next series, which will be on the novels of the Harlem Renaissance. Uh, I will be looking at nine novels over the course of that series, and it'll be not nine episodes, I, I guess maybe 15 episodes or so. I haven't quite looked, but um, you know, using the 100 pages rubric, it'll be uh, more than nine episodes. Um, but several of them are just are, are short novels. But I'm going to then pick music that really comes from the Harlem Renaissance. That's going to be my goal in those those episodes. So I'll try to pick some of the, the best songs that came out during the Harlem Renaissance in the 1920s and 30s by black musicians. Scott Joplin was born right after the Civil War uh, and died before he could experience the Harlem Renaissance himself. But it would be an understatement to say that he influenced the creativity of many musicians who were active during the Harlem Renaissance. Um, so with that, let's now look at some of Norrison's nonfiction writing. Um, yeah, it's just a series of, of essays. I think there's about 20 of them or so. Um, I guess they're not for everyone, but... But, um, you know, actually the first time I read through Norris's writing, I didn't even read these essays. I just skipped them, but um, I did spend the time to look at them now. Um, the first that we have is called Theory and Reality. Uh, this essay is a book review of William Dean Howell's A Parting and a Meeting and J.R. Jarbo's Robert Atterbury. The first novel is about a man who joined the Shakers and meets his childhood sweetheart who had married. And the man begins to regret joining the Shakers because the Shakers have a celibate life, of course. And when he sees her, he feels really bad about that. Now, Jarbo's novel is a more direct political polemic against marriage. Um but is joined with an acceptance that humans will not always be rational and will marry. Uh, and now in this character, I'm actually reminded of Annixter from The Octopus, and maybe Norris was thinking 
of Annixter when, or at least I think Annixter was still being created in his mind maybe at this point, but you know, there's, there's kind of a similarity there in Annixter's character. But more directly, Jarbo seems to be challenging the practicality of eugenics. Um, now, Norris, though, sees the novel, Jarbo's novel, as not being very natural and therefore a failure. It's just too openly political. So it's, he's kind of making a warning here against making your novels too directly political. And he seems to prefer Howell's novel. The next essay is Zola as a Romantic Writer. Now, Nor Norris is known as a naturalist. And this essay is Norris's defense of naturalism. Um, you know, in any list of naturalist, naturalist writers, you're going to have Zola and Norris on there for sure. He sees Zola as achieving something beyond and better than realism. And this is what he calls naturalism. And here's how he defines it in that essay. Naturalism is a form of romanticism, not the inner circle of realism. Where is the realism in the Rugen Marquet? Are such things likely to happen between lunch and supper? That Zola's work is not purely romantic, as was Hugo's, lies chiefly in the choice of milieu. These great terrible dramas no longer happen among the personnel of the feudal and renaissance nobility, those who are in the forefront of the marching world, but among the lower, almost the lowest classes, those who have been thrust out or wretched from the ranks, who are falling by the roadway. This is not romanticism. This drama of the people, working itself out in blood and ordure, this is not realism. It's a school by itself, unique, somber, powerful, and beyond words. It is naturalism. Um, and, you know, Norris, for his credit, does live this out. He tries to tell stories of, of common people and struggles with forces that they cannot uh, hope to confront. Uh, the next essay is The English Course of the University of California. Now, this essay is really fun for people like me who are interested in curriculum development and even have done it from time to time. Um, certainly, I have pounded my head against the wall of established courses um, before uh, when, I, when I used to teach. Um, here, I still teach sometimes, but um, not as much as I used to. Now, here, Norris takes on the classification of literature classes and the endless specialization, which he doesn't think very useful. He thinks students are taught to parrot what professors want. Um, essentially, originality of ideas is suppressed in in Yale or the University of California. Sorry, I don't know. I don't know why Yale was in my mind there, but uh, he thinks originality is suppressed. The whole the conclusion of the whole matter is that the literary courses of the University of California do not develop literary instincts among the students who attend them. The best way to study literature is to try to produce literature. It is original work that counts, not the everlasting compiling of facts, not the tablooing of met metaphors, not the rehashing of textbooks or encyclopedia articles. He actually thinks Harvard does a much better job because their curriculum was more free. Um, now, this is probably only of interest to maybe either people who have an interest in curriculum and, and its criticisms, or perhaps readers who are have a historical interest in, in the, the education of, of writers. Um, the next essay is called An Opening for Novelists. And in this novel, in this or this essay, Norris just makes the case that San Francisco is a nice place for a literary revival due to its combination of the rural and the urban and the varying ecologies of the areas. You know, you have desert, you have the city, you have uh, farmland. And actually, Norris's own career kind of works in this geography. He, he wrote about the San Joaquin and he wrote about the city in McTeague and he wrote about deserts in McTeague as well. Um, he says that San Francisco has a literary public, a, a 
you know, a literate public that wants to read, but there's no writers who have claimed the title of being a San Francisco writer the way you may have a, a New York writer or a, or even an L.A. writer, perhaps. But there's no San Francisco writer in his view. Uh, so that's that essay. Uh, next is an essay called Fiction is Selection. Norris here contrasts the writer with the maker of a mosaic, meaning writers can only ever appear to be real. They cannot be real themselves. And this is this is where he, I think he's kind of cutting at realism. I mean, the realist goal was to craft reality. And Norris doesn't think that's possible. And the naturalists, what they'll do is be realistic and try to be realistic. And of course, they're concerned with real forces that affect people. But they they get at it by going into certain aspects of of life, usually the most miserable, the most horrible, um, violence or suffering or poverty or something, and get at that. And so that is not realist because it's, it's just a, a slice of life. But he, naturalists think you have to kind of get deep into one aspect of it to get, to get realism. Just the broad overview, the snapshot of a whole society uh, doesn't get you true reality. You're just getting the, that overview. Um, However, this essay contains another anti-Semitic outburst. Go back to my first uh, podcast on the Norris series or go back to when I, the, the, the stuff on McTeague when I talk about his anti-Semitism there. It's just unfortunate. It's unnecessary for his argument and it's actually pretty cringeworthy here. So, you know, if, if you want, you can just skip this essay. He, he makes the point in a better way elsewhere too without having to resort to anti-Semitism. Um, then we have a kind of a satirical piece called Perverted Tales. It's really a collection of short vignettes claiming to be rejected tales of the type popular among vulgar audiences. Um, I'll just let you read it yourself. They're, they're kind of fun little short stories, but um, maybe doesn't, they're not really necessary that we look at. Um, after this, we have three weekly letters from the summer of 1901. They're all from the Chicago American Literary Review. So I I don't quite know if Norris was running a column for a while with the Chicago American Literary Review. It kind of seems that way. Um, but we just get um, three different books, book reviews, essentially, or three different essays. One of these is a book review of The Crisis by Winston Churchill, uh, the American writer, not the British politician. You know, of course, the British politician was also a famous writer, but this is the American Winston Churchill. Google it and you'll find the difference. He simply pans the book, uh, so whatever. The second... A column seeks to address the conflict between taste and realism. Standards shift over time, making the question of how realistic is this book really historically contingent. And, you know, in a way, I think you take an issue like, I guess, maybe sex, which, you know, Norris is pretty cagey about. He doesn't talk about it, even when he talks about um, uh, Minna, sorry, Minna Hooven's descent to prostitution. It's very subtle uh, you know it's actually hard to miss if you're not reading very carefully it's announced later on in the book that yes indeed she was a prostitute but it's it's really hinted at so um and then in vandover and the brute you have a very brief moment where there's a hint of sex but it's passed on and only referred to after the fact um is this you know so he can't be realistic about sex because the tastes at the time don't allow it or maybe his own sentiment and feelings don't allow it so it's kind of an interesting discussion of, of uh, another criticism of realism. Like you can't be realistic without at some point confronting the, the tastes and the limits of the public's ability to accept 
you know, realism in terms of violence or sexuality or language, the way language is spoken. Um, when we get to the Harlem Renaissance, maybe we'll come back to this discussion of writing in dialect. Anyways, the third column here is a story by, of an unnamed author struggling to get known. This author has the ability and creativity, but he'll never be a major name in literature because he cannot help but allow the audiences to shape his voice. I don't, you know, I don't know if this is a real person he's talking about or if it's an allegorical tale, but it's certainly true to reality, I think, where you have talented writers who write for audiences, write what audiences wanted, write to make money, and therefore they'll never be great. They'll, they might be successful, but they won't be great writers. Next, we have the true reward of the novelist. And here, Norris attacks writing for money, um, stating that the true reward of a novelist is to tell the truth. What is corrupting literature is the copyist, or those who simply write what is known to sell. Um, and I don't know how I feel about this. I'm a little bit bothered. Uh, of course, Norris died young, and so he's always what we could call a young writer. And, you know, it's a, I guess it's a common feeling among younger artists that I don't need money or I don't care about money, right? Um, he's writing before the WPA, before the government was funding writers. And we live in an era now where the idea that the public sphere, at least in the United States, the idea that the public sphere should fund writing is under threat uh, and under question. Um, so I wonder if we can't compromise these views. I, it's not I'm not here necessarily talking about the writers who make millions of dollars because there are very few of those. I'm talking about the writers who, you know, who need to sell their works just to put food on the table. Um, and to some degree, concern about what audiences will read and want to read is important to novelists just on a just in their role as a, a worker who's producing something that needs to sell. Um, so I'm a bit un uncomfortable with this pure purism uh, about art. Next is an article called Novelist of the Future. And here Norris is saying that being a novel requires the writer to engage with the world as it is not uh, study other writers excessively. So this is kind of a follow-up to the true reward of the novelist. Um, life must be the educator of the writer is, is sort of his point here. Next, we have the need of a literary conscience. Uh, again, this is kind of more on the same theme. Norris believes that writers have a duty to speak the truth, but it's not at all clear what that truth is or, or at any one point. Literature needs leaders because it needs someone who is is kind of above the fray, who's above the chaos. You need someone who can see what the truth is and lead writers to speak to it. And maybe he thinks he should be one of that writers. He certainly thinks naturalists are in this position of being kind of leaders of, of the genre. Next, we get the mechanics of fiction. Uh, this is more of a practical essay on just how to write. Uh, Norris makes a case for writers embracing a certain machinery, a certain technology of writing. Writing is not, in his view, an inspired explosion of creativity, but something requiring preparation, planning, and careful, systematic crafting. Um, so writing is a craft. It's not art. It's not inspiration. Uh, creativity alone can, can create an idea. Maybe it creates uh, the start, a spark, but presenting it to the reader in a way the reader can understand takes careful planning. Patience and skill trumps brilliance in this regard. So I think it's a very important essay, actually. Um, uh, other people have said this. It's not original, or certainly there's other people who have said it since then, but um, 
it's a useful reminder anyways. Uh, next we have A Plea for Romantic Fiction. This essay suggests back to his review of Zola in his defense of romanticism over strict formal realism. Romanticism is not sentimentalism, he says. Realism cannot get beyond the surface of things. That's the problem with realism, pure realism, is it's just like a, a, a camera angle over, over something. And, or even if you just like, like a, a realist could describe a scene at a restaurant where someone's eating, they describe maybe the smell of the food, the look of the person as he's eating, the smile on his face, but it can't get into the head of the person consuming the food maybe. And that requires this more emotional investigation of the mind of, of the subject. But that essentially going to create subjectivity, which seems to undermine the goals of realism. Um, so he's preferring naturalism, which is, he thinks realism infused the capacity to get into the reality under the surface. Now naturalism, as I understand it, agrees fundamentally with the roles of re goals of realism, but thinks that it cannot uh, be lost in the strict declaration of facts. It must focus with some emotionally charged focal point. Uh, often it's suffering for Norris, but perhaps it could also be love or passion. And there are moments in Norris's writing where that focus is on passion, like with Buck Annixter's character and the octopus. In this way, perhaps Norris is saying that without some romanticism, realism really doesn't get us anywhere. It just gets us snapshots of, of, of life, but it doesn't get us under the surface. Next, we have fiction writing as a business. You may think this is another critique of writing for popular audiences, but it's actually a critique of the capitalism in fiction writing itself and a criticism of how publishers take most of the profit. Uh, and this is why most writers cannot make a living from their fiction. And it's uh, this is still true, obviously, where um, writers are largely an exploited part of, of, of publishing. Um, the next essay is The Literature of the West. Here we have an exploration of what Western literature can mean uh, with The End of the Frontier. Um, I don't know if he read Frederick Jackson Taylor, Frederick Jackson Taylor, Frederick Winslow Taylor, um, and his writing on the frontier and the end of the frontier. Certainly, you're, he, you know, he, we're at the end of the frontier by Norris's life. Um, and so he thinks it's time for kind of a new Western literature. And this literature, literature must be diverse. It must not dwell in the rural past. In the rural past, it must give get rid of the cowboys, the Wild West, the prairies, and kind of reorient to cities, uh, to a more diverse ecology, perhaps. Um, basically, there needs to be a, a rethinking of what literature in the West would mean, uh, looking at the West more as a region with instead of just a frontier. Next, we have the great American novelist. And here he lays out his doubts of the existence of the great American novelist or even the great American novel. And as we know well enough, that is a myth. Um, I don't know if the course of this podcast, if I'm going to find the great American novel, uh, it probably will depend on what I'm reading at the time. He certainly doesn't think a gr great English novel is, is possible either. Um, so he's not too worked up over this. He just doesn't think it's, it's possible. Um, the Frontier Gone at Last is the next essay. Like the literature of the West, Norris here is considering the fate of American literature with the end of the frontier. This is a more direct discussion of the conquest of the West, though and its meaning of that conquest for American character more broadly. 
the frontier may be alive in memory and myth, but it's gone from history. Um, there's a lot here about racial theory, and there's this question of what will the Anglo-Saxon race do now that the continent's been completed, now that Manifest Destiny has done what to do. And of course, you had the colonialists who said we had to go into the Pacific and did so with the conquest of the Philippines. Um, but that question overhangs it. And there's a lot of kind of racial language and social Darwinian themes in this essay. He does end the story, though, with a fairly optimistic message on human brotherhood, which I want to throw out there just as a as maybe a response to those who want to criticize Norris as being too much of a of a social Darwinist. Um Will it not go on, this epic of civilization, this destiny of the races, until at last and at the ultimate end of all, we who now arrogantly boast ourselves as Americans, supreme in conquest, whether the battleship or of build bridge building, may realize that the true patriotism is the brotherhood of man, and know that the whole world is our nation and simple humanity our countrymen. End quote. Now, I don't know how you can read this and not get a sense of socialism and certainly get a sense of internationalism, in there. Uh, I don't doubt his anti-Semitism because it was on display in some of his works, but I, I do think there's um, an argument to be made that Norris is a humanist and a broad-minded one. Next, storytellers versus novelist. There's not much new in this article if you you know read through the previous ones. He talked about this in another essay, but the argument here is simply that storytelling is a gift while writing a novel is a craft. Um, so it's the, the the essay he wrote on the craft of writing. It's just re, 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 repeated here, but with a slightly different contrast. Next, the novel with a purpose. Here, Norris says the ordinary novel tells us something. The better novel must also show us something. Right? The best novels tell, show, and prove something. So he's got kind of three ranks. He says bad novels or the ordinary novels just can tell. Some better novels can show. And the best novels will then do that, but also prove something. So yes, the best novels must have a purpose. His example of this is Les Miserables. I, I just had to go back because I, I, I said a word that would um, make my lyrics not clean. So no, I, don't, I try not to do that, but um, I'm a bit vulgar in my, in my normal life, but I'm trying not to be in this podcast. Um, anyways, Norris answers the question, the criticism that the common people need to escape with their novels by saying that the common reader really has no idea how horrible the world really is. They really have no idea of the suffering and therefore must be forced to understand by the artist. Um, now, the common idea that literature is about escape is that people's lives are bad. People's lives are horrible already. They want novels to escape, to, to get out of the world uh, where they're in. But Norris thinks it's actually backwards, that people's lives, most of us live our lives and don't realize the mass suffering that's out there. We don't know, we can't experience a famine in another country. We can't experience um, the suffering of pe people in a class outside of our own or in a job that's outside of our own. So the artist needs to be reminding us of how bad things are um, for others. And this is the one of the purposes that the best novels will have. Next, a neglected epic. The American epic must tell America's great story, um, which must be the conquest of the West, he thinks. But instead of appreciating the violence and suffering and trauma and epicness of westward movement, 
we get, or America was getting at the time, Wild West shows, barroom brawls. Um, and he's got an interesting passage here. Let me find it. Um, he's talking here about the true hero of the West. He did not lounge in bar rooms. He did not cheat at cars. He did not drink himself to maudlin fury. He did not shoot at the drop of a hat. But he loved his horse. He loved his friend. He was kind to little children. He was always ready to side with the weak against the strong, with the poor against the rich, for hypocrisy and pretense, for shams and subterfuges. He had no mercy, no tolerance. He was too brave to lie and too strong to steal. The odds in the lawless day were ever against him, but enemies were many and his friends were few. But his face was always set bravely against evil and fear, was not in him even at the end. Um, so this is his idea of the hero of the West, and he's sick of this kind of the Wild West heroes, and he doesn't think it really accurately depicts um, West. And so America can have an epic, may not be able to have a great American novel, but it can have an epic, but it can't be coming out of the genre of the Western. And then finally, the last essay we get here is The Responsibilities of the Novelist. And like his earlier essays on this theme, Norris is simply arguing for the moral duty of the artist to express the reality and to do so in a way that exposes the true nature of the world. Writing for popularity and money is misguided. And I've given my comments on his other expressions of this idea uh, in this podcast already. So that does it. We are done with Frank Norris for now. Um, I think we'll get one or two stories. Uh, the Library of America volume on... On, on horror literature it's actually two volumes i think has a norris essay so we'll get bits and tastes of him later on um but for now i'm pretty much done with norris i will i'm looking forward to starting the series on the harlem renaissance i've been reading those novels um i've read some of them already and i'll be getting full time on that as soon as i can um but for for now i'm going to sign off uh thank you so much for listening i hope you enjoyed this episode even though it's not about literature um, if you like this, please rate, subscribe, uh, share this. Uh, you can email me at hundredpagescast at gmail.com. Um, so that will close the book on Norris and I'll see you in a hundred pages and we'll be ready to talk about the Harlem Renaissance.